Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I can't explain it. I don't know why my heart beats like a fist. When I meet some dude with an attitude saying, Hey, you can't do that. Or this. And the man was lost. Six foot eight, and he's acting like St. Peter standing guard at the pearly wristband. My man, you got to have a wristband. Hey, you don't have a wristband, you don't get through the door. And I said, Wristband, I mean, it's just Okay, so the reason we're playing that song, we're going to have a, kind of a comprehensive and pervasive conversation about sports and where they are right now uh, as they try to crawl through the tunnel of a pandemic. Um, but what makes that song apropos is for the NBA right now, they all do have to wear wristbands because they're in a Disney bubble. They serve the mouse. Uh, and so you got to have your wristband uh, on to go anywhere and get checked in and out of practice. All that kind of stuff. So we have some terrific guests here today. We're going to begin with Ben Cohen, who I'll introduce in just a second. We've had him many times before. Uh, we love him. Um, I just want to say, tell you a quick story. So this is quite a few years ago. I'm in a sports bar, a Packers bar in San Francisco. And and I'm going to watch the Packers game. And this woman walks in, and she's got this kind of you know pregnancy outfit on. Uh, that's a, has Packers insignia on it, and it has something like little cheese head uh, being made here or something like that. Um, and, and she walks into this bar and she says, my water just broke, but my doctor says I can, I can watch at least the first half. And rather than occasioning shock, uh, this caused a bunch of other women there to tell stories about meeting their obstetricians, you know, behind the stands at Lambeau during halftime or something. Um, and I tell the story because sports in a way is irrational, right? It doesn't really make any sense uh, to care as much as we do about it. And in, in a lot of ways, sports is something that we do at times or root for at times with a kind of reckless disregard for our bodies. Even pregnant women whose water has broken, uh, they want to watch the Packers game. That doesn't make any sense. But sports typically don't have to make any sense. Um, we don't like them because they make so much sense. We like them for a whole bunch of other reasons. But here, here they are kind of pinging up against a situation where they have to make sense and and many of the the delightful excesses of sports just they just have to be ratcheted down a little bit uh, or maybe even a lot uh, and even so it may not uh, I mean it may not avail uh, in fact the latest news you probably know St. Louis Cardinals uh, have a bunch of people testing positive uh, Co coach Doug Peterson different sport now Philadelphia Eagles NFL uh, has tested positive on and on it goes joining us now to talk specifically about the NBA and some other stuff uh, Ben Cohen is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the author of we have to actually just sit down and talk about this book at some point uh, the author of the hot hand the mystery and science of streaks welcome back to our show Ben 
Thank you for having me make as little sense as possible. <laughs> um, well, you'd, you'd fit in if you didn't make sense, but we know that you'll make lots of sense uh, about this. So I guess the first thing to say about the NBA, I mean, there's sort of, you know, for professional sports, there's kind of two models. One of them is this bubble, uh, and the other uh, is kind of, I don't know, some loosely defined standard of personal responsibility or something. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to say with a straight face, um, but the bubble seems to be working for the NBA. Tell us about that. And not just the NBA. It's really every American sports league that has tried to bubble so far. So before the NBA even started last week, the National Women's Soccer League was almost was done with its bubble in Utah. The MLS was several weeks into its Disney World bubble. Um, the NHL was planning to bubble in Canada because they wanted no part of the United States anymore. But the biggest, longest, most expensive, most ambitious, most wild, crazy, odd bubble so far is the NBA's, which is moving 22 teams to Disney World for several months at a time. It is costing hundreds of millions of dollars. But crucially, it appears to be working so far. There have been zero positive cases inside the bubble, which is many fewer than baseball has seen while they are out in the community traveling from city to city. And um, I think it is um, sort of a testament to all of the care and thought that the NBA put into its health and safety protocols, taking going from like 10% of the league testing positive in their home markets to zero inside the bubble. And it's the reason really why there was basketball from noon until midnight for the last three days. And I mean, it's interesting too, in a way, because um, the NBA has a built-in disadvantage in the sense that the players play indoors. Um, there's a sort of a general sense that a sport like baseball could conceivably, at least in the playing of it, which is just one part of it, be safer. And it might have actually been the NBA's advantage here because they kind of knew that they couldn't go from city to city playing indoors, this, you know, high contact, crowded indoor game. I mean, it, basketball is basically how this virus spreads. We know that now. We didn't really know it in February and March, and we know it now. So the NBA had to get creative. And what sounded really unlikely and maybe even impossible a few weeks ago building a bubble, right? Like constructing almost like this sovereign nation inside of Florida and pulling it off without any positive cases so far. Um, it's sort of becoming reality. Now, that doesn't mean that the season is guaranteed to finish. And what league officials and players and coaches and executives all say is that they knew that finishing the season will be much harder than restarting the season. But what the epidemiologists and the public health experts I have spoken with have said is that the hardest part of this bubble was the transition period from the real world into this sort of fake world. So that first week or two of the bubble and establishing a baseline of zero cases was actually the most important part. And they are well past that now. I mean, we're almost a month into this thing and there haven't been any outbreaks, let alone a single case so far. So, you know, getting everybody on board with this idea um, was probably probably involved a lot of behind the scenes negotiations that we didn't see. But I get the sense also that the more established that you are as a player, 
the harder this is to take. I mean, for example, LeBron James, who is as well established as anybody could be, he, I think he compared it to prison at one point, whereas some of these younger players are kind of happy to be anywhere. <laughs> They're happy to be in the NBA. They're happy to be, be doing this. But, you know, a lot of a lot of the whole point of becoming LeBron James or, you know, or any of the big stars is so that people can't tell you what to do all the time. And they've really kind of, in a way, had to fall into line with a kind of regimentation. So there are a few things. The first is that players like LeBron James, who are in contention for a championship, the superstars, were really the ones who were pushing hardest for the season to resume because, you know, they have a lot on the line. LeBron James's entire career now is sort of in the shadow of Michael Jordan. And if he can win a fourth championship under these circumstances, it will be kind of unforgettable. And the guy's 35 years old. There really aren't going to be many more opportunities for him to win a title. And I think he's smelled an opportunity here. So, so those guys pushed really hard for it. And the concerns about this being like a prison or, or being incarcerated, I think turned out to be, um, you know, unfounded. I think that since they have arrived in the bubble, the players have kind of sung the praises of the NBA, that they don't feel like they are trapped, even if they kind of are, right? They're confined, but there's a lot for them to do. And um, I don't think any of them have um, really come out and complained about the accommodations so far. I think there was a lot of pushback early on, even once they arrived in the bubble at a time when so many people are unemployed and there's this just destructive pandemic happening for NBA players to be complaining about the food inside the bubble. I think they took that to heart. But, you know, the other thing about LeBron specifically is that he is now in an environment where the only people he interacts with are NBA players or people involved with the NBA. For the first time in like 20 years, he can kind of walk around wherever he is, like not having security around him at all times and not worrying about you know fans coming up to him or or being interrupted wherever he goes he can kind of go to the breakfast line and you know not feel concerned it's it's kind of remarkable the privacy he has inside the bubble because everyone there can kind of relate to him it's a it's a funny little byproduct that i'm not sure anybody expected or realized would be the case until they got on the ground and looked around and realized that all of the other citizens of these bubble are nba players it's it's amazing I hadn't really thought about that. That is amazing. So there was this day in March where we everything got really serious all at once. You know, in America and the world, I think it was the day the WHO used the word pandemic. I think it was the day Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson got sick. But I mean, one of the places that you suddenly knew that things were going to get serious was in the NBA, uh, where they started to have uh, some uh, positive tests. Uh, and because sports love symmetry, there is kind of an interesting uh, bit of symmetry here with, with the player who kind of got it all started. I believe he scored the first points uh, of this bubble in closed offseason. Do I have that right? Yeah, that was Rudy Gobert. He was the first uh, American athlete, first major um, American sports league athlete to test positive. And it's important to not say that he was patient zero for sports, right? Because we really don't know how he was infected. Or maybe, you know, another NBA player who was asymptomatic infected him. But it was his positive test that stopped the Oklahoma City Thunder versus Utah Jazz game on March 11th and resulted in the suspension of the NBA season that night. It was really an extraordinary 24 hours in American sports because by the end of the next day, I believe, 
the baseball season had been postponed, the NHL season had been suspended as well, and the NCAA tournament was on its way to being canceled. That was, you know, the the 24-48 hour period when everything changed. But when the NBA came back, the Utah Jazz were actually in the first game of the restart. And who scores the first points of the first game? None other than none other than Rudy Gobert. And who wins the game with two free throws in a two-point game? Rudy Gobert again. So there was some real poetic symmetry um, to what the NBA has been through over the last five months to go from Rudy Gobert testing positive and shutting everything down to Rudy Gobert scoring the first and last points of the first game back was kind of cool to see. You know, speaking of patience uh, zero, um, you wrote about a team, a college basketball game that was postponed in January, which is really kind of remarkable. I mean, postponed in January because of coronavirus uh, worries. Um, remind us about that. It was a game between Central Michigan and Miami of Ohio uh, late January, around the time when Americans were kind of waking up to what was happening in China, but before anybody really knew what was happening and long before people had wrapped their minds around what was in store for us. But um, a student on the Miami of Ohio campus had come back from Wuhan and was showing symptoms that were troubling enough that he was one of the first people in the United States tested for coronavirus. So his test results were sent to the CDC in Atlanta to be turned around. And, you know, in, in sort of a preview of our dystopian future, they took a long time to come back. And in that window, when they didn't know if this student had the coronavirus and what that meant for the rest of the campus, there was a basketball game that night indoors with thousands of people that were supposed to be there. And what ended up happening was Miami of Ohio called Central Central Michigan and said, should we play tonight? Or do you guys feel comfortable playing? And, um, you know, they talked to doctors and university officials and even the school president, and they decided not to play that night. They, they postponed the game. They had it later. And it was the first American game, as far as we know, that was affected by coronavirus. And there are really two reasons why I think people did not pay much attention to this at the time and probably have forgotten about it since then. The first is that it was a Miami of Ohio versus Central Michigan basketball game. It's not every day that Mid-American Conference basketball games um, you know, become national news. But the second reason is actually more compelling. It was just about the craziest week in sports. This happened on a Tuesday. That Sunday was the day that Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash. And the following Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. So it just sort of got lost in a turbulent, crazy week for sports news. This really remarkable event that was kind of a preview uh, of the next few months in America was sort of forgotten. And it was interesting to look back on it because many of the decisions they had to make on the fly um, were things that they just never could have imagined. And those unimaginable events have sort of become reality for us since then. So it was, it was kind of cool um, and instructive and a little bit revealing to see how they uh, dealt with this situation that they just were not expecting. So, Ben, you know, th this would be a strange enough um, and, and um, transformative enough moment 
if the only thing we were dealing with was COVID. But it seems to me that woven into this is a lot of other stuff, uh, ranging from obviously uh, a, a very different kind of conversation about race in America. Um, and I think also maybe a longer ongoing thing where athletes you know, have claimed more agency over their own bodies, over their own destinies. You see, you know, players like Andrew Luck saying, well, I, you know, I, I don't have to play forever. I can stop right now. Uh, you see college athletes uh, asserting their rights more or trying to leverage the power that they, they have as athletes more. So, I mean, it, it just this is sort of an, an interesting moment. And for the NBA to go through it inside this bubble where they can, I assume, really talk to one another outside the range of other people who might be trying to influence them like you know what do we want to do before games how, you know how are we going to handle the national anthem moment stuff like that maybe you can say a little bit more about sort of the moment all the things coming together here yeah we've already seen the effects that this national reckoning on race have had in the NBA restart so far. All you have to do is look at the court. It literally just says Black Lives Matter on the court in the same way that on the baseball field now, instead of saying MLB, it says BLM. This thing that, you know, it, it, it used to be the field and the court used to be this sanctuary from real life, or at least people like to look at it that way. And now when you look at the field in the court, um, you have this stark reminder of everything that is happening in this country. And, you know, nowhere was that clearer than in the minutes before the first NBA game of the season, where the Pelicans and the Jazz together, all of them knelt for the national anthem and they locked arms and some of them raised fists, but nobody stood. And the NBA has this longstanding rule against protesting during the national anthem. You are not allowed to kneel during the anthem. You have to stand in a dignified posture. It's been on their books since the early 1980s. And as recently as 2017, when President Trump was in a feud with the NFL over Colin Kaepernick, uh, the league, the NBA, reminded teams in a memo about this rule and suggested that they were willing to enforce it. Now, no player back then uh, knelt and forced the NBA to make this decision in part because they felt that their voices were being heard and that any commotion that came from them kneeling would ultimately be counterproductive. And um, I think LeBron James had an interesting way of putting it that, you know, he has a voice, right? He doesn't need to kneel because his voice is being heard. Now that's changed over the last few months. And now we've gone to a situation where you know, the very few players and coaches and referees who are standing for the anthem have have basically been asked to explain after the game why they are standing. And it, you know, it, what it used to be is that anyone who knelt for the anthem um, was asked to, um, you know, elucidate their thinking. And now it's actually flipped the other way. And since then, you know, most, if not all, players and coaches and referees have knelt before these NBA games. And you know, it's really um, sort of this clear, um, inescapable reminder that they are playing basketball, but they do not want to distract um, from the simmering rage across the country. And um, they want to try to use their platforms and their voices, especially uh, with this spotlight of basketball that, you know, that, that, um, that is shining on them right now as they are one of the only sports playing and people are sort of tuning in to watch them on television um, to, to, you know, to tell them to, to do all sorts of things. I mean, even on the names of their 
even on the back of their jerseys, their names have been replaced by these personalized statements that many of them have chosen to wear. Some of them say equality, some of them say Black Lives Matter, some of them say vote or stand up or I am a man. I mean, just, you know, things that, um, you know, again, back in March, March 11th, never would have been imaginable, right? NBA players kneeling for the anthem and wearing um, political statements on the back of their jerseys. And yet, um, this is exactly what's happening and it's become very normal very quickly. So, um, well, actually, let's just stay there for a second because I think it's also interesting. My understanding is that although you can do that, isn't there sort of a pre-approved list? I mean, you can't put MAGA or something on the back of New Jersey, right? <laughs> yes, you can't put MAGA. You can't put Free Hong Kong probably more pertinently to the NBA. That's right. This was um, a pre-approved list um, of statements that was negotiated between the NBA and the players' union. So it's not just the NBA saying, here's a bunch of statements, you know, players, you can wear one of these if you want. These were shaped with input and um, uh, opinion and expertise from the Players Association. So um, I think there are some players who have said they're, they are wearing their own names on the back of their jerseys because none of the messages that were given to them really resonated with them and they would have you know, chosen something else. Um, but many of them, I mean, hundreds of players are wearing names that are not their own on the back of their jerseys, which is remarkable to see. And as a viewer, a little bit, confusing because sometimes you say who is that guy again i you know he's not uh group economics or education reform he doesn't his his face doesn't really look familiar to me but um but again i think that's part of what the players want um they want these messages to get out even if it means not having their name on the back of their jerseys you know since you said uh free hong kong we should just quickly touch on this so they're in the midst of all of this kind of social progressivism and, and you know much needed uh, ways uh, of expressing very real things in America there's almost kind of a parallel universe going on uh, in terms of the NBA's relationship to China which started last October with um, this tweet from Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey saying you know fight for freedom stand with Hong Kong and that one tweet overnight basically imperiled a relationship with China that the league has been fostering for decades now. Um, they have lost hundreds of millions of dollars. They are still not on TV in China. The Rockets are still not streaming in China. And it's really unclear what happens next, especially as diplomatic relations between the two countries continue to, de- to deteriorate. So um, that is um, definitely a question for uh, for the NBA, especially as the playoffs go on and as we get closer to the finals. I mean, one of the reasons why people were so bullish about the future of the NBA is that it has real growth potential internationally and especially in China, which is the league's most lucrative foreign market. Now, what happens if the Rockets make the finals and the NBA finals are not on in China? I mean, that is uh, something that is definitely a possibility and it would be kind of wild to see, especially because the NBA finals now are scheduled for the first week of October, which would be the one year anniversary of that infamous tweet. Right. Uh, who, who knows where we're going to be in October anyway. But, <laughs> so, uh, you know, just one last question here, Ben. I'll make you uh, not just commissioner of the NBA, but commissioner of all sports. So you look at the I prefer NBA. Czar. 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 Okay, Czar. Um, so you're Czarness. Uh, we look at all the sports and, and we see that this bubble approach is working, not just for the NBA, as you pointed out at the beginning, for a bunch of other sports. Now, 
the NFL obviously has not played any games yet. They do not currently have any kind of bubble plan in place. And of course, an NBA, NBA, uh, an NFL team is a huge thing. You know, just the size of the roster itself makes it a little bit more complicated. But they're they're more going that kind of personal responsibility route, which is sort of what baseball's been trying unsuccessfully to do. So, yeah, as commissioner or czar of all sports, excuse me, czar. Um, you know, I don't know what what would you what would you expect the NFL to do i mean is there time for them to change course do are they likely to do that as they watch on the one hand a success unfold down in disney world and on the other hand some real problems uh for baseball well it seems they are unlikely to do that whether or not there's still time to do it i think is another question that um even as czar i'm not sure that i am qualified (laughs) to answer as you said you know a few nfl teams um basically equals the entire total of NBA players who are in the bubble. I mean, the sport is much bigger. The rosters are huge. The support staffs are enormous. And it would be what the NBA is doing, I think, is this hugely complex logistical undertaking, the likes of which have never really been attempted in professional sports before. But if the NFL were to bubble, what they would have to do would dwarf even what the NBA is doing. So um, I'm not sure that it is feasible for them to bring thousands of NFL players to like Hawaii, right? And play out the <laughs> NFL season, um, you know, on high school fields in Maui or something. But, um, but, but what the NFL could do is sort of build a bunch of mini bubbles, whether it's in home markets or in a few hub cities, like what the NHL is doing. And um, I would be curious to see if they're going to consider that in the next few weeks as we find out more about what is in store for baseball and how, you know, college football too um, deals with this crisis. So, you know, maybe NFL players will have to live in hotels in their home markets for a few months and sort of limit their movements from the hotel to the practice facility to the stadium. Because I think the real risk here is going home to their families where kids are in school and maybe, you know, their parents live with them or their grandparents and and taking um, community spread and bringing it into an NFL facility and vice versa. And then, you know, spreading that from parts of the country to different parts of the country. So um, maybe mini bubbles, um, you know, the, the, the NFL season could be like a bubble bath or something. It would be, you know, not quite one bubble, but a whole lot. Maybe that's more feasible. But the idea of building one massive bubble, which, you know, even Tony Fauci has floated in the last few months, um, has been kind of dismissed by the league and the players association. So um, I don't think it's likely, but, you know, it might become necessary. And um, I think that is what, what happens to football, what happens to the NFL, and what happens to college football is really the next, um, you know, most important question for sports in the next few months. Because as we all know, there is no sport in America that is more popular than football. Um, and, you know, the idea of no football season, I think, hits home to a lot of people. And so I'll be very curious um, to use my powers as sports are wisely and and try to make sure there is a football season for people to watch on Saturdays and Sundays this fall. Right. It's that kind of thinking, anyway, I think that got you to be czar in the first place. And That's right. And it's great, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And I'm taking it very seriously. 
And there's only so many times we can rewatch Air Bud Golden Receiver um, <laughs> before we really want to see a football game. Uh, all right. Well, Ben Cohen, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, we should say that Ben Cohen, we're very lucky to have him on, on the show, uh, sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal, author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. All right. We're going to keep at this. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk uh, about some of those other sportsing things with the hitting and the kicking and the running. I wish I was like six foot nine so I could get with Leoshi because she don't know me, but yo, she's really fine. You know, I see her all the time everywhere I go and even in my dreams. I can scheme a way to make her mine because I know she's living fat. Her boyfriend's tall and he plays ball. So how am I going to compete with that? Because when it comes to playing basketball, I'm always last to be all right, we're going to talk some more about all this stuff. Uh, I've become a big fan of the sports reporting and analysis on Axios. Uh, Jeff Tracy is a sports reporter for Axios. Uh, he's joining us now. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much, Colin. So one of the things that you've reported on is just testing. I mean, we don't have enough testing here in the population at large, but in a way, you can kind of see what a massive testing program would look like uh, if we could do it for another group of people. Uh, so maybe just sort of give us a sense. Well, first of all, the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Soccer are all using something called bioreference laboratories. Yeah, that's correct. They all uh, contracted the same company. Um, so obviously they're doing a good enough job for uh, those leagues. Right. They're not. I mean, they're, they're either that or the bubble approach is, is what's working per our, well, our yeah, earlier. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. Testing itself obviously is necessary to kind of trace these things, but it also doesn't do anything to actually spread the virus. That's where the masks, social distancing, all that come into play. And of course, a bubble is a pretty big luxury that we don't all have the ability to uh, create, but you know they have the money to do it. And uh, so far, as we've seen with those bubble leagues compared to, say, MLB, which is obviously not in a bubble, uh, you know, no positive tests in the bubble for, for weeks now, and MLB is dealing with a bit of a crisis and the the possibility of a canceled season. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, and, and this, I mean, it is sort of interesting to contrast this world with the rest of the world. And, and I wonder if you feel as though professional sports ultimately may have some minor publicity problem just with the fact that they are using a lot of tests per day, a lot of tests per week, tests that presumably if they weren't being used in this manner would be used in some other uh, less sports-oriented way. Uh, so I don't know. Have they? Has anybody kind of acknowledged the optics oh, of that? Absolutely. Optically, ethically, it's certainly... Uh, as you say, yeah, they've got a, a bit of a, a, a publicity problem here. Um, they are doing some things to uh, mitigate that. Uh, MBA has uh, created a program not only in the Orlando community that their bubble is in, but all throughout their markets in the country, uh, the various MBA markets in the country where they've launched with bioreference um, a sort of like roving mobile testing for those communities, specifically for underserved communities who have been uh, most affected by the coronavirus um, with just a lack of access to quality health care. So they they have the money, of course, to do this. Again, that's why they're able to do the bubble. And uh, they also are pretty smart and understand that whether they feel ethically or morally or anything wrong about what they're doing um, or not, they know that many people in the public do. And so they're trying to sort of assuage that population by saying, you know what, we're, we're doing our thing. We have our bubble. We understand that that's taking a lot of resources. 
we're going to make sure that we're also giving a lot of resources. Um, now we're starting starting to look at the resumption or non-resumption of college sports. And this seems trickier because college sports isn't, I mean, the NCAA is one thing, but college sports isn't one thing, right? So, and, and one of the things that you uh, you've, have been writing about too is the way in which the athletes themselves also uh, are in a position maybe to make some choices. It's not like they're under contract, they're not getting paid. Um, so maybe just sort of give us a general sense of how college sports is fumbling towards September. Oh, absolutely. Fumbling is definitely the right word. I mean, it's similar to just schools reopening in general and that whole discussion. And the mere fact that there are some schools that are considering or already, you know, going all online for classes and yet also saying, but we might still play football. And so what does that say that we're not feeling safe enough to bring students back onto campus to learn, but because football makes us a lot of money, we're gonna do everything we can to get those players on campus. And again, talking about that bubble versus non-bubble, we can debate all day about why, say, MLB decided against a bubble and NFL similarly is not planning to go to a bubble, but the NCAA, college sports, really just don't have that option. I mean, there's these are kids, they, the money, every possible reason, they couldn't do a bubble. And yet they're still considering this even though the the, pandemic, the virus does not seem to show any signs of slowing. And, um, you know, this is this is a game of money and good on the players that the the huge uh, news yesterday out of the Pac-12 was uh, these hundreds of players grouping together and saying, you know what, we're not going to play, we're going to opt out of this season and sort of hold out the way that we've seen many professional athletes do in recent years, unless you meet our demands or at least meet us at the negotiating table and, and try to take better care of us than we feel you're taking care of us right now. Um, and that's a really big shift. Uh, you know, college players have maybe always had that level of power, but they haven't realized it. Um, and just in these last six months as they've been, uh, leaders on campus and in their communities with, uh, black lives matter protests and, uh, you know, really turning into these, activists even at a young age um and they're taking that in the next level right now and and whether it works for this upcoming season or not remains to be seen but i think it's a really big move for the future of college sports well you know some of that pac-12 uh protest that you covered i mean it also illustrates the position uh in in which uh, athletes are often put um for example, one of the things that they're uncomfortable with are COVID-19 liability waivers. And I, you know, I think for people who haven't followed this, the idea that they would have to indemnify somebody against their getting sick when they're <laughs> yeah. playing for no money in the first place is kind of a strange reversal of responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, you know... <laughs> That, again, that's sort of uh, related to this idea of we're going to put classes online, but try to make college sports happen in person. Um, if you have this understanding and obviously reasonable and probably right understanding as a college that bringing a bunch of kids back to one area during a pandemic might not be the best for health, then, you know, it, you're understanding that in this waiver. Oh, we know that we're kind of putting you at risk. So we want to just make sure that we're not responsible for that risk. And by the way, you're not going to get paid, but by coming back, you're going to make us a boatload of money. Enjoy. And yeah, that is all sorts of uh, 
I don't, I don't even know what to say, how, how to call that, uh, except for the fact that these students obviously are very intelligent and understand that, that what I just said, that, that two plus two right now is not equaling four to them. And they're trying to make sure that if they come back, it's basically, you know, we don't want to take the risk unless there's the possibility of reward. In this case, things like just better health protocols, which is hardly a reward that's more table stakes, or even finally getting to that uh, compensation for for playing, uh, getting some sort of revenue sharing model. And meanwhile, if we decide not to play, because again, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we don't want to be um, you know, negatively impacted in our future careers in terms of losing out on years of eligibility or scholarships that we've already earned. Right. And I, I think also, you know, that they're st probably starting to get wise to the fact that there are people who get infected with COVID-19, uh, including young people, um, who are not significantly or not excessively symptomatic. Some of the some of these people don't even wind up being hospitalized, but then they can't quite get their bodies back to where they were for a really long time. These are people who are distance runners who have to take a break while climbing up one flight of stairs. We've seen it now with Eduardo Rodriguez uh, from the uh, Boston Red Sox, who as his COVID goes away, it turns out it, it left behind it as it as it has done fairly frequently for people, uh, some heart problems. The women's U.S. women's rowing team uh, had a run uh, of COVID, and they just described how incredibly difficult it was to get back into the kind of shape that they were in. COVID had done something to their body. So, so now you see some of these people who, the small group of college athletes who could make a lot of money uh, in the NFL, NFL draft or the NBA draft, you've got to wonder whether they want to put their bodies out there right now and maybe have them be compromised somehow. Absolutely. The uncertainty over just, I mean, this is, this is a brand new virus. There's a reason it's running the uh, very scary course that it's running throughout the whole world. We just don't know a lot about it. And even those people who are asymptomatic or even get pretty sick, but then get better, you know, Freddie Freeman and uh, on the Atlanta Braves, he was, he's about as, uh, you know, in, in as good shape as anyone in this country. And he had 104 fever and was essentially praying not to die in the middle of his coping with uh, with that bout of, of COVID. And, you know, now he's back and hitting the baseball well, but who knows what that's going to look like in six months, in two years. Hopefully nothing. Hopefully it is for those who are able to either be asymptomatic or recover seemingly fully. It doesn't have long-term effects, but that uncertainty is really scary for anyone. And as you say, it's particularly scary for people who have their entire future and future earning uh, potential ahead of them. So uh, quickly, uh, so, and then we'll go to a break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about uh, baseball. Uh, we live in Hartford. We uh, tell stories around the campfire about a sport that was played on the ice with sticks and people pushing a disc around. It turns out the, that continues to be played, just not here anymore. Um, so the N NHL, they, they sort of have a, a double bubble, right? Uh, yeah. Explain, oh, it, explain what they're doing. West. Uh, yeah, so yeah, they have uh, they have a double bubble going going around. I love that that gum. So uh, great <laughs> image in my head. Um, and uh, yeah, they have the Western Conference teams uh, over in Edmonton and the Eastern Conference teams in Toronto. And uh, it's really interesting what they did uh, creating this twenty four team. Uh, it is essentially a playoff format as opposed to the NBA, which still has this brief, uh, you know. Uh, conclusion of the regular season, the NHL is going directly into the playoffs. Um, and so what they're doing is that the top four teams in each conference are automatically into the playoffs, uh, where and then the next eight teams in each conference are doing these uh, best of five 
play in rounds to see who actually whittles down to that final standard 16 team playoff format. Um, although interestingly, the top four teams still have to play each other in a round robin to determine their seedings. So there's a lot of moving pieces going on, uh, which I kind of like. I think that this whole 2020, every sport, every everything really, uh, you know, this is the time to experiment. The, the mere fact that we have sports back right now is uh, is, is a bit of a blessing, especially for somebody like me who covers it. Um, and so if you want to get a little weird and have some experimental, you know, round robin tournaments just to try to help with parity and making sure everyone has sort of an equal chance, um, I'm all for that. So we're talking to Jeff Tracy from Axios. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the baseball. Stay with us. We're back, and we're going to talk some more to uh, Jeff Tracy, sports reporter for Axios. Before we do that, uh, let me quickly thank uh, Kat Pastor, who's uh, keeping uh, everything going in the studio right now, making it possible for us to broadcast remotely, uh, and uh, Jonathan McPants, who is producing this episode. I, for various personal reasons, needed to not have it be live today and schedule it in the morning, and everybody accommodated me. I thank everybody for being flexible. Oh, very quickly, too, we're going to do this uh, really interesting thing for the next three days, because Betsy Kaplan and uh, our senior producers on vacation. We're going to, we get this very long interview with Jimmy Webb. We're going to cut it. We, we've already cut it in half. We did it this way once before. We're going to do Jimmy, a day of Jimmy Webb, a day of our Laura Nero show, and then a day of Jimmy Webb. Anyway, so back to Jeff uh, Tracy, uh, back to baseball. So um, obviously the news is out that the Cardinals uh, now also have um, some, uh, some positive tests in, in their midst. There are epidemiologists who are already saying this basically is when you really should pull the plug uh, on the season. But uh, Jeff Tracy, it looks like they're going to try to keep going for a while anyway, right? It does appear that way. Uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, has has been pretty uh, stout in his <laughs> desire to, you know, we're not quitters is what he said. Uh, he, he keeps on saying uh, what... What appears to be the wrong thing, uh, if I'm being honest, you know, when when the Marlins outbreak began and he was asked if it was a nightmare scenario and he just flat out said, no, I don't think that this is a nightmare. Meanwhile, as 15 to 20 Marlins are testing positive. Um, and yeah, they're going to continue the season uh, as long as they feel they can. I'm not entirely sure what they think that breaking point might be if it isn't, you know, a week and a half into the season, we already have one full outbreak and one that could potentially be on the way, but I don't know. So meanwhile, one thing that we haven't said for this entire show is that these games, when they are being played, are not being played in front of people. Uh, there are sometimes cardboard cutouts. My favorite thing that's happened so far is a cardboard cutout of a guy kneeling down for one of those uh, pop proposals. Mm -hmm. uh, and and she said yes and all that kind of stuff. The things that goes on in baseball stadiums all the time. But, but also, there were some understandings, right? Some health and safety rules. No high fives, fist bumps, hugs, no spitting. But... I don't know. It's one thing to say that. It seems like baseball players are doing all those things, Jeff. Oh, they're absolutely doing all those things. And I think it was a little naive to expect that they wouldn't. These are just habitual for years and decades of playing baseball from the youngest age. You, you're, you're playing a sport. You're high-fiving. And, and that is part of the sport. And that's why, again, the thing, the, the, the bubble atmosphere of the other sports that are working so well right now 
you, you take away the need to change the sport itself because everyone in there is contained and ostensibly safe. Yes, they're wearing masks, whether that's to be extra cautious or just to show the, the world that is watching, like, hey, you should wear a mask. Whatever reason, they're able to play the game like they play the game. MLB decided, you know, we're going to travel. We're, we're going to cut down travel to be just regional, but we're still going to be traveling. We're still going to have players going home to their families every night and ostensibly you know, nobody's... Uh, watching them, whether they go to a bar or a restaurant or anything, it's sort of this honor system. And, you know, the fact that even on the field, they're not able to do the no high fives, no spitting, can't even imagine what it is that they're doing when they're not on camera. So it's, uh, it's sort of a, feels a little bit like watching a slow motion car crash in action um, and just hoping that everyone comes out all right. But uh, it has not taken long for, it to get a little bit derailed here. Right. There's there's a lot uh, for, I think, Major League Baseball and for the NFL at minimum, a lot of what we could charitably call magical thinking going on here that somehow yes. or other, this is just this is just going to work because we want it to work uh, so much. So we should quickly say, you know, you, you said this is a great time to experiment. Um, so I, I, I don't know until this was mentioned in my Axios sports letter. I don't think I've quite understood this, um, that in extra inning games, each team starts with a runner on second base. That Tell is true. And that's actually something that they've been toying with for a few years they there's this in uh independent minor league called the atlantic league and they're generally uh sort of mlb's version of a lab um so when they're thinking about doing new rules they'll kick it into that league first get some data see how it works and then sort of decide oh maybe we'll try it in spring training in mlb and maybe down the line we'll use it so that second base rule has been happening since 2018 in the atlantic league um, and now, you know, I, I don't foresee this being certainly not next year and, and who knows how long or if ever it becomes uh, an actual MLB rule. But uh, yeah, it was just they didn't want these. They didn't you know, they wanted to cut down the amount of time that these players are out there together. So even though nine innings is long enough, like we don't want those 18 inning games that blow out bullpens that keep players out beyond, you know, what's reasonable in a pandemic. And let's just if it gets to extra innings. Let's sort of uh, push them over the edge a little bit to to help this game end quickly. And, and so far, it has worked in as much as most of the uh, extra inning games so far have ended in the 10th inning. Um, but it also opens up all sorts of strategic decisions on whether you bunt, whether you swing away. Again, it's an experiment. It's, it's uh, sort of interesting to watch. So, you know, I mean, when I look at some of this and even like going down to the high school sports level, I mean, speaking of magical thinking, it seems as though there's this kind of idea in some places. Well, if we do a little less of what we usually do, maybe that'll be fine, which is not really exactly how the epidemiologist epidemiology of this disease seems to present that yes of course the amount of time you're exposed to somebody who's a spreader can can affect your own infection rate but you know the idea that well let's play 10 high school games instead of 16 this year or let's make sure the game the major league baseball games don't go too long or you know yeah. I, I mean that's not really what's going on probably the marlins are getting sick not because they're not out on the field too much but you know because they're in the clubhouse too much absolutely it definitely appears to be far more likely that again being outdoors in general we know this just from listening to scientists from seeing numbers like being outdoors you know you don't want to be too close to a stranger right now of course but you are far safer outside where air can sort of dissipate than if you're in a contained environment so yeah out on the field 
it could happen. Of course, you're next to a, a guy hits a single. You're pretty close to the first baseman. Some sort of transmission could happen, but it's far less likely than 30 people sharing a clubhouse, sharing airplanes and buses. And, you know, that is where it happens. And because these people are going home to their families and possibly going into the public, yes, they are getting tested significantly more often than the general population. So at least you should be able to catch uh, a possible outbreak sooner than not being in a professional sport. But that doesn't change the fact that contracting the virus is still very much a possibility and therefore spreading it is as well. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but you know, I do think it's interesting just to talk about how this ultimately will be perceived this whole time. Let's say somebody hits 400 uh, this year or uh, does you know some other thing in a 60-game baseball season, assuming there's a 60-game base- baseball hey, season. Big you assumption. Know, <laughs> yeah, and then it'll be something people fight about in bars, except there are no bars anymore. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this for the people who write the story of sports, people like you, is going to be also a challenge, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, we, it sounds like you're sort of hinting at the possibility maybe of an asterisk for either the season or a specific record broken or, or approached. And I think it's interesting because I think that asterisks, they have this, at least in baseball, you know, they have that negative implication. If you're talking about putting an asterisk next to a home run record by a player who has maybe been implicated or, or definitely took uh, performance enhancing drugs. Um, that's different from what 2020's asterisk will be, which there will be an asterisk on this whole year, sports and otherwise, because how can there not be? And I think that anything that happens in this year you know, it will come with that context, that full story of, yes, somebody hit 401, but it was in a 60 game season during a pandemic. And we're not going to say that that's the first time that somebody hit 400 since Ted Williams in 1941. So maybe, maybe instead of an asterisk, they can have just a little coronavirus thing, which looks like an asterisk anyway. Uh, Perfect. Perfect. So So, Jeff Tracy, a sports reporter for Axios. So great to have you. Big fan of the work uh, that you guys do there on sports coverage. We're going to say goodbye for today. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to my staff for being flexible. 